a part of, or the main thrust of what the passage that James just read about God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts and his ways, not our ways, are the verses that come right before that, where he says, I forgive the rebellious, I forgive wicked sinners. That is the thrust of my thoughts are not your thoughts. Isn't that amazing? God saves sinners. And part of the other part of that is the things that he does in our life that we don't understand. His thoughts are beyond us. His ways are beyond us. Like sometimes God sends a lying spirit into the mouth of a prophet. Sometimes God calls out to spirits, like when he called out to the prophet Isaiah and said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Sometimes God calls out to spirits and asks for a volunteer to go entice a king to go to battle. Sometimes God sends a lying spirit into the mouth of a prophet or 400 prophets. Hmm. Really? Does God really do this? Yep. That's what we'll see today in 1 Kings chapter 22. So turn there in your Bibles. Sometimes God sends a lying spirit into the mouth of a prophet. Though God is not the author of evil, he does use evil. He does use secondary causes to accomplish his purposes. And because God is holy, it is impossible for him to sin. But that does not mean that he is unable to use evil and evildoers and evil spirits to accomplish his will. He is sovereign over all And yet, he remains free of evil. So sometimes God says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And the prophet Isaiah doesn't answer. A lying spirit does. And then God gives said lying spirit a job to do. Does this make you uncomfortable? If it does, just read the text. It's right there in 1 Kings chapter 22. So today's passage is one of those nasty narratives where our notion of God gets challenged, where we have to come to grips with the truth that God is holy and he does what he wants to do. And when he does what he wants to do, he never sins. The question before us is this, do we want the God of the Bible who does whatever he wants to do? And so our big idea today is a question that we always have to be asking ourselves. Am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? As I mentioned last week, the church today in general has gone off the rails and has forsaken God's word. People do what they feel. People do what they think is right. They say things like, I know God's word says that, but I feel this. So what better question should every disciple be asking than this? Am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? Are we going to let God's word direct us in how we are to glorify and enjoy God? It's a question as old as the Garden of Eden. 
that talking snake showed up one day and started asking questions, and then everything went downhill from there. Adam and Eve should have been asking this question, but they didn't. And so here we are. Thank you, Adam. Some people would rather plug their ears and not wrestle with tough passages like this that we're going to look at today, but we don't want to do that. This is God's word. He recorded this story for us to tell us what he is like. So we shouldn't be afraid to wrestle with passages like this so long as we're willing to leave with a limp. Ralph Davison encourages us to wade into the nasty narratives of the Old Testament, which, like our passage today, highlight God's judgment. I mean, people do not want to talk about God's judgment today, do they? Churches and Christians, disciples, they don't want to talk about God's judgment. So Ralph Davis says this, If people have difficulty with God's judgment here, it is, I think, a matter of taste rather than substance. They will likely raise the bogey of the Old Testament God, blowing people away for the slightest offense and dropping folks in their tracks for minor slips. But it's all a smokescreen by folks who don't read the whole Bible. What do they do with the New Testament God who arranges a double funeral because folks fudged about a real estate deal? Acts 5. Why did folks at Corinth end up in the ER or the morgue because of a little arrogance at the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. Why the severity of Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12? Difficulties with Old Testament narrative often reveal more about us than about the Old Testament. We tend to get irritated if God doesn't fit our notions of what he ought to be. We don't, truth be told, want some God we have to fear, which is to say we don't want the real God. Don't be afraid to wade into the nasty narratives of the Old Testament, for it's in the nasty stuff you'll find the God of scary holiness and incredible grace waiting to reveal himself. Do we want the real Jesus? Do you want the real Jesus? We must ask ourselves that question this morning. Do we want God to be who he, see it, who he says he is in his word? Or do we want God to be who we wish him to be? Do we want the real Jesus? Sometimes the real Jesus arranges the double funeral because folks fudge about a real estate deal. And sometimes he sends people to the morgue or the ER because they arrogantly take the Lord's Supper. And sometimes he sends a lying spirit to deceive a king. That's the real Jesus, whether you accept him or not. But he's also very gracious to idiots who mess up their lives, isn't he? And that's good news, isn't it? He's also gracious to idiots who mess up their lives. More on that later. But recall what we saw last week. King Ahab, at the request of King Jehoshaphat, has sent for a second opinion from the prophet Micaiah about whether or not he should go to war with Syria. And on the way to see King Ahab, Micaiah gets warned by one of Ahab's toadies that he better speak favorably to the king. But Micaiah tells Ahab's goon that he only says what God says. And that's where we pick up the story today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. Let's begin in verse 15 and hear the word of the Lord. 
And when Micaiah had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answered him, Go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So Micaiah finally arrives at the celebration, and Ahab asks him if he should proceed with his plans to go and try to get Ramoth-Gilead, the city, back from the Syrians. And Micaiah replies, go up in triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But why does Micaiah follow suit with these 400 false prophets? Why does Micaiah say the exact same thing that the prophets do? I think we have to listen for tone of voice here. Go up and triumph. The Lord will give into the hand of the king. You have to read this with a little sarcasm. That's certainly how Ahab heard it because of how he responds. Clearly, that's how Micaiah must have said it because Ahab catches on. He realizes this is sarcasm. And I think Ahab's response proves that it is. And so how does Ahab respond to this? He asks Micaiah, how many times do I have to ask you if you're telling me the truth? Are you playing with me, Mick? So Micaiah prophesies the party line with Zedekiah and company. Micaiah spouts out what the others have said because he knows that Ahab doesn't really want the truth. Then Ahab makes Micaiah pinky swear that he's telling the truth. And then Micaiah finally tells Ahab the truth. Micaiah finally says, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. But I'm going to give it to you, son. I saw Israel scattered like sheep and there was no shepherd. And everyone returned to their home in peace. So what does this mean? What is Micaiah saying when he mentions the sheep being without a shepherd? I think it means, one, because there is no shepherd, that means that King Ahab is going to die. No more king. And because he says there's peace now, that means that King Ahab is going to die. No more king. What Micaiah means here is that he saw that Ahab would die. No shepherd means Ahab is dead. The nation of Israel would would be without a king. They would be without a leader. And there would be peace in the land. And that means that Ahab is going to die and that all of his rebellion against the Lord would no longer poison the nation. And so how does King Ahab respond when he hears 
that Yahweh has begun arranging funeral plans for him? How does Ahab respond when Micaiah tells him that the Lord has picked out a plot at the cemetery for him? He looks at King Jehoshaphat and says, See, what did I tell you? This guy does not like me. He's always predicting bad stuff for me. He just said that I'll be pushing up daisies soon. Get a load of this guy, Jay. But then Micaiah interrupts Ahab and tells him in verse 19, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne surrounded by the armies of heaven. Then I heard the Lord ask a question. He said, who will go out and entice Ahab to go and fight at Ramoth Gilead so that he will die in battle? And a spirit stepped up and came forward and said that it would go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets. So the Lord dismissed the spirit and said that it would succeed and that you would die. It was wild, Ahab. It was all about what's going to happen to you, bro. Yahweh sent a lying spirit into your 400 prophets so that you would believe them and go to war with Syria and die. So Micaiah tells Ahab, a lying spirit inspired Ahab's 400 prophets and that the Lord, in fact, had actually declared disaster for Ahab. Micaiah saw, he was able to see what was happening in the heavenly throne room and how Yahweh had sent this lying spirit to inspire Ahab's prophets to lie and that the Lord had declared disaster for Ahab. But don't miss that there seems to have been some sort of discussion going on in heaven. The Lord asked who would go and deceive Ahab, entice him. And verse 20 says, And one said one thing, And another said another. It appears that the Lord entertained their ideas. It was like the spirits were having a brainstorming session with Jesus. And then finally a spirit came forward and said that it would entice Ahab. And God says, okay. What? I don't have a category for this. (laughs) What in the world is going on here? Wow. Well, we might not understand it all, but this is what God's word says happened. So guess what? This really happened. Like in the book of Job, God has a conversation with who? Satan. Hashtag spirits brainstorming with Jesus. This is not to imply that Jesus doesn't know everything because he does. Now, notice there are two throne room scenes here. We have Ahab and Jehoshaphat sitting on their thrones at the gate of the city of Samaria, assuming that they know what will happen when they go to war with Syria. And then we have Jesus on his throne, and he alone knows what will happen. And that's how it always is, right? We plan, we speculate, we brainstorm, but in the end, the truth of Proverbs 19.21 always hits you upside the head. Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If that verse doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. But let's talk about what you're probably dying to know. What's with this weird, strange scene in verses 19 to 23? What's with the Lord sending a lying spirit to the 400 prophets? How can God, who is holy, and we were just singing that, weren't we? 
And we'll sing it at the end as well. How can God, and we didn't plan these, this service either. We didn't pick the songs, but there's the Spirit at work. How can God, who is holy, be involved with something like this? Sending a lying spirit. Well, let me offer some help when you encounter weird passages like this in God's Word. What we must avoid is asking questions which begin with, but why would God? Don't start with why. Don't let that be the starting place. Start with what. What does the text say? We have to stick with what the text does tell us. What does the text say? Now, it will not answer all of our questions, but then again, the Bible never answers all of our questions, does it? Remember this, the Bible only answers the questions that it wants to answer, that it thinks are the most important questions to answer. Some answers may have to wait for heaven. A lot of answers will have to wait until heaven, right? In the meantime, when I do have questions, and I still have lots of questions, the first person that I usually go to, the first theologian that I seek out, is the late R.C. Sproul. You can't go wrong with R.C., can you? He says this, This concurrence or simultaneous working of the Lord and men, good or evil men, to bring about God's holy purposes is hard to comprehend. Duh, right? He continues, but we must always maintain that we are responsible for sin and that the Almighty remains free from any stain of wickedness. John Calvin writes, God acts so far distinctly from evil men that no vice can attach itself to his providence and that his decrees have no affinity with the crimes of men. John Calvin's comments on Genesis 45.8 are essential reading for anyone studying God's sovereignty and human responsibility. There is much we can say about the Lord's guiltless use of evil men to achieve his good plan, but ultimately... He's quoting Calvin again here. This method of acting is secret and far above our understanding. Do not be surprised if you find this doctrine difficult to understand and do not expect the Lord to fully explain his good use of human wickedness. Difficult to understand, isn't it? Some things are beyond our understanding. And some answers may have to wait until heaven. And even then, we may not get all the answers because guess what? We're not God, are we? We're not all-knowing. We're not omniscient. We're not going to be omniscient. 20,000 years into eternity, we're not going to be omniscient. Of course, that doesn't satisfy us, does it? We're American, by golly. We demand answers. It's our right. Inquiring minds want to know God. We want to know it all. All we want for Christmas is our questions answered with a pretty bow on top. You got that, Jesus? So understand this, Grace. The Bible is not moved by our hunger to know all the answers. The Bible is not our whipping boy to satisfy all of our curiosities. But what the Bible does is answer the most important questions. And your pastors here at Grace, of course, we would love to answer all your questions and help you. But we will not be able to answer them all 
because the Bible doesn't answer them all. Come and ask us questions, but be prepared for an answer like this. I used to know the answer to that question. I even wrote a paper on it in seminary, but I'm getting older and I have six kids and my brain is a lot slower these days. So let me go look it up and I will get back to you and I will tell you what I believe about that passage. I just can't remember right now. Y'all need to understand this. I am, hang on, I need to go look up what I believe years old now. (laughs) Expect that answer from me sometime. I am, hang on, I need to go look up what I believe years old now. Welcome to middle age. All you young 20-year-old whippersnappers, just hang on. You start to forget things. Or the pastors here might say to you, the Bible doesn't address that. It's a mystery. Let it humble you. God knows everything, and you don't, and you never will. So go to work on your humility. Or we might simply say to you, I don't know. You can expect that answer a lot from me. I don't know. But let's ask a why question here. Why does the Lord deceive King Ahab? And you may be thinking right now, it's unfair that Yahweh is deceiving Ahab. That doesn't sound like Jesus at all. After all, three times the Hebrew word here, patah, to lure, to entice, to seduce, to deceive, is used here. But let's reread the text to answer the question, why does the Lord deceive King Ahab? Look at verse 19 again. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So let me answer the question for you. Why does the Lord deceive Ahab? Answer, he doesn't. He doesn't. The Lord is not deceiving Ahab because the Lord clearly tells him this is what's going on. Yahweh tells Ahab that he sent a lying spirit into the mouth of his prophets. It couldn't get any more clearer, could it? The Lord is saying, I'm not deceiving you, Ahab. I'm telling you straight up that I sent a lying spirit to your 400 prophets. They are lying to you. Are you going to believe them or me? Do you still want to go to war with Syria knowing that you're going to die? So God is not deceiving Ahab at all. He's telling him straight up that the 400 prophets are lying to him. This is grace. Grace. This is grace. God is once again graciously giving Ahab what he does not deserve. This is grace, more and more grace for this dirty, rotten, scoundrel king. God just keeps sending his word to Ahab, but he doesn't want to hear it. 
He plugs his ear, his ears, and he's like, la, 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 la. I'm not listening, la, la, la. Listen, be careful if you ever reach a place where you want to plug your ears to the truth of God's word and what you know what you need to do, and you go, la, 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 la. That's Ahab. He wants the city of Ramoth Gilead so bad that he's willing to risk his life to get it. In fact, notice the word behold there in verse 23. It's the Hebrew word hene. It's a word which we've seen throughout our series in 1 Kings. In fact, it's used all over the Old Testament. And when the authors use it, they are inviting us into a scene and they want us to observe something, to kind of be like the director of a movie and to get behind the camera. And that's the Hebrew word here, hene, behold. It means come here, enter into the scene, Get behind the camera, observe with your own eyes what I'm talking about. Get a load of this, come here and check this out. And so God is saying this to Ahab through the prophet Micaiah. Come here and see this with your own eyes, Ahab. Get a load of this. I sent a spirit to lie to you through 400 prophets. Now, how are you going to respond to my word? That's the question of life, isn't it? It's a question for the church in today's cultural climate. How are we going to respond to God's word? Is it the Bible or Hollywood? You got to pick one. There's no middle ground here. It's social media or it's the scriptures. There is no middle ground. The question before every disciple today, the question before every church is, how are we going to respond to God's word? Now recall too that Ahab repented after Elijah spoke a word of judgment to him in chapter 21. He responded in repentance. Might Ahab repent again? Might Ahab hear this and fall on his knees in repentance? Maybe Ahab uh, will enter into the scene and see with his own eyes that he's being tricked and that he will die if he goes into battle. And maybe he will repent. Maybe. 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 Well, let me give you a heads up and drop a spoiler on you. Ahab doesn't. He doesn't repent. He doesn't humble himself. Oh, how hard the sinful heart of man is to God's revealed word. If this doesn't make you believe in total depravity, I don't know what will. If this doesn't convince you that we are sinners and that what the heart wants, I mean, the heart, that the heart wants what the heart wants, if it doesn't convince you of that, I don't know what will. Let this passage humble you today. Where do you need to hear God's very clear word and obey? This tells us that Ahab is beyond beyond the point of obeying God's word. It makes no difference. He finds out exactly what has transpired and he's unmoved by it. He's so far gone, he cannot stomach the truth. And later in the chapter, he believes enough of the truth of God's word that he's going to die, that he will try to hide his own identity on the battlefield. But he doesn't believe enough of God's word to stay away from the battlefield. Ahab, hearing both the true and the lie, in the end, prefers the lie. Again, to quote Ralph Davis, and he's commenting on Exodus 4, a passage which says that the Lord went out, sought to kill Moses. Do you have a category for that? 
He's commenting on the passage where the Lord said, you didn't circumcise your son, I'm going to kill you. Do you have a category for that? Here's what Ralph Davis says about that passage. What shocks some is probably the view of God in this text. It blows some 21st century minds to think that the Lord attacks Moses and that over a, to them, relatively minor matter. Given our cultural mindset, even in the church, it is very easy for someone to look at this text and say, that is not the way God is. The God of the Bible would not act that way. They are at least misleading when they say that. What they mean is, God, as I conceive of him, would never do that. But that is just the question, isn't it? Do we worship our conceptions of God or God? So this text is good for us. We do not understand how Yahweh could be so abrupt, so lethal with Moses. We get used to thinking that there is a dull predictability about God. Sometimes we may even begin to think that because we follow a certain system of doctrine, Reformed theology, we therefore know what God will and won't do. And there is a danger among both believers and unbelievers of slopping into this way of thinking that so much as says, God would never demand or require of us anything we believe unreasonable. God would never do anything I consider to be against good judgment. That is a recipe for an idol. The most shocking part of Exodus 4 is most useful to me. It forces me to ask if God is free to be who he is or do I try to make him my prisoner, subject to what I think he should be? A Christian must keep asking himself, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? What a scary place to be where you try to make God be who you think he should be, where you listen to your own heart or what culture says God should be like, where you think God would never demand anything of me that is unreasonable. He would never require me to believe something that seems unreasonable. See, when we read the Bible, we must always be asking ourselves, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? Do we worship our conceptions of God or do we worship God? Is God free to be who he is or do I try to make him my prisoner, subject to what I think he should be? Am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? If you're uncomfortable with the God of the Bible and you think that you have the right to call the shots on any issue or you think that you have the right to tell God who he should be, that's a scary place to be, my friends. And we've all been there in little ways in our life, of course. It's a scary place to be where you become like King Ahab and where God's word is irrelevant to you. When you know the truth, but you don't adhere to it, pray that your heart never gets hardened to this point. Please pray for me. Pray that my heart never gets hardened to this point. But how can God be good and loving and send a lying spirit? Well, as we just saw, God was not deceiving Ahab at all. He clearly told him that the prophets were lying and that he sent a lying spirit to stir them up. So it's important for us to understand that God never sins and he is not the author of sin. The Bible makes it very clear 
that God uses even the evil acts of men to accomplish his good purposes. This is known as the doctrine of concurrence. Google it. Read some R.C. Sproul on the topic. God ordains not just the ends, but also the means. His providence encompasses even the evil that men do. And the scriptures are full of examples of God using evil to bring about his purposes, to bring about good for his people, right? Pharaoh, Cyrus, the actions of Joseph's brothers, right? Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. We have Job's story, but most fully, where do we see it? We see it at the cross, As the book of Acts says, Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God's eternal plan to send Jesus to die for our sins, for rebels like us, but it came about through the plans and actions of evil men. So when evil occurs, both God and creatures are Involved, but only the creature is guilty of wrongdoing. That is because the creature's intent is evil, but God's is not. God never sins. God never lies. God is truth. Don't get this wrong. The God of the Bible is a God of scary holiness and a God of incredible grace. So it's important for us to understand that God never sins, and he is not the author of sin. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, chapter 3 on God's eternal decree, it says, God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. This is the doctrine of concurrence. It helps us explain how God can ordain everything and not be guilty of sin. God always has holy intent in all that he ordains. So if you conclude that because God uses evil and sin to bring about his purposes, if you conclude that he must be the author of sin then, then you have a faulty view of the God of the Bible. God ordains all that comes to pass, and yet he's not the author of sin. So when you read the Bible, always be asking yourself this question, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? As we close, let me tell you about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is working all things together for your good, Christian. Maybe you have experienced evil. Maybe you have experienced some kind of abuse. Maybe you have experienced some kind of heartache that you had no hand in whatsoever. Maybe someone has done some evil thing to you. Here's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible will take that evil thing and purpose in it and through it for your good and for his glory. You can trust him. You can trust him. No matter what has happened in your life, 
God will use it all to bring good into your life. He has promised you in his word he will never stop doing good to you. Heartache, bad decisions, who doesn't make those? Sin, who doesn't do that? Stupid choices, that's me. Evil, abuse, hardship, Fill in the blank with all the bad, evil, stupid, dumb, sinful, ugly, awful, horrendous things that have happened to you or that you have done. And God says to you today, the God of the Bible says to you today, come here, sweetie. I will take all of that heartache and crud and use it to bring so many good things into your life. Come here, son. I'll use all of your past, all that has happened to make you more like my son. And what others meant for evil, I mean to bring good. Trust me. I'm not evil. I'm good. Real good. And you can trust me today about what happened in your past to bring showers of blessing in the future. Just you wait and see what I'm going to do just for you. Wait until you get a look at what I have planned for you. That's the doctrine of concurrence. And people think doctrine is boring. And theology is boring. It's life-giving. It gives hope that out of the evil in this world, God can bring good out of it. God doesn't turn evil into good. Understand that. God does not call evil good. Evil is evil. But God is so good and so powerful that he can bring good out of evil that's the god of the bible doesn't that make you want to put away your bitterness put away your anger and worship him you can trust him how do you view god today what do you think the god of the bible is like is he always angry always frowning do you feel like he's always frustrated with you listen christian he is gracious Just like he was calling Ahab to return to him, he's calling out to you today. Come on home. His unmerited favor is yours. It's free for the taking. And if you call on Jesus, then God will only and always look on you with favor. That's the God of the Bible. If you are trusting in Christ alone, the Father looks on you this morning with pleasure. His face lights up every time he sees you. His face lights up. Oh, there's my son. There's my baby girl. That's the gospel. Why? Because he sees you through Jesus. God the Father sees you now in his son whom he loves. So if you are a Christian, then God's face is turned towards you in Christ. And no matter what you encounter in this life, evil, stupid decisions, sin, whatever, Whatever happens in this life, God's face can never, ever be turned away from you. And so how do you respond to the God of the Bible this morning who does weird things like brainstorm with spirits? How do you respond to the God of the Bible this morning who does weird things like forgive sinners and rebels and dole out love and affection upon them forever? Here's how you respond. You marvel again that God loves us this much. That's how you respond. You rejoice that his favor is extended to us in Jesus even though we are so unfaithful. As we close, rub these last few sentences into your pores this morning. Every day 
the Father's face lights up to behold us, to see us, because he sees us clothed in the sacrifice of his Son. Every day he looks on us, turns his face toward us, and says to each of us, this too is my son whom I love. This too is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is the God of the Bible. And he says to you, Christian, receive my peace, beloved of the Lord, upon whom my favor rests. I just read something this morning by Ray Ortland and added it to the end of my sermon here. Let's let it shape how we respond to God this morning. He said this, put on Instagram. We enter God's presence with singing. So let's sing our full heads off today. He's too good for us to care about saving face. Let's crank it up, y'all. If Credence Clearwater Revival deserves a hearty sing-along, Jesus deserves more. So we tell our sadness, shut up and leave me alone for an hour. And we go to church and we rejoice in the Lord. So let's stand up and sing our full heads off this morning. Let's tell our sadness, shut up for four minutes while I sing to my God and rejoice in Him. Stand and we'll pray. Jesus, you're so good to us, so kind and gentle, and yet you're so out of this world and wild and crazy, and you know everything, and we know very little, and you're infinitely glorious and infinitely wise, and you do things that make us scratch our heads and we don't understand, but you're good and you're in control, and you are able to take evil things that happen to us in purpose in them and through them to bring overwhelming goodness into our lives. Who does that? You do. And so we worship you this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to sing our full heads off this morning and to just worship you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.
Please bow for benediction. May you trust him today, even as you're singing your foolish head off. In Jesus' name, amen.